Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Lindsay agreed to take police to the murder scene. Warren and Nicole had met a gruesome end almost a two-hour drive from the campsite. As Lindsay led detectives through the bush, the stench of death grew stronger. It wasn't long until the group came to the creek itself. As they moved upstream, they saw a large tree, which had fallen across the waterway. Its roots exposed. Laying in shallow water nearby were the remains of Warren. Detectives wouldn't need to look far to find Nicole. Lindsay showed police where she lay, next to a small tree. Using a map, Lindsay showed police the routes the car had traveled, the spots where the men threw their knives into the lake, and where they'd burned some of the evidence. Investigators now had to see if they could extract a similar confession from Leslie. Detectives drove to Gullburn to see what Leslie had to say. Unlike Lindsay, he was far more vague about his account. He told police that some girls had indeed gotten to the car at some point, but that he couldn't recall much of what happened after that because he fell asleep. Police told Leslie that Lindsay had made a full confession and that the jig, in effect, was up. Still, Leslie refused to budge, now claiming that Lindsay was in fact the lone killer. Leslie said that after going to the music festival in Bega, he and Lindsay got out of the car and walked under a bridge where Lindsay injected him with heroin and amphetamine. When Leslie got back into the car, he was unable to drive due to the effects of the heroin. He fell asleep and when he awoke, Lindsay was driving along the road between Bega and Tathra. Leslie told police that Lindsay stopped the car and talked to two girls. Partway through the conversation, Lindsay took the TV that was in the back seat and put it on the side of the road so the girls could get in. Asked whether they had ever gone back for it, he paused, then said no. Leslie explained he wasn't in a fit state to do anything over the 10-12 to 12 hour period to anyone, claiming that he was incapacitated by drug use. Stating, quote, We picked up the girls and went to the beach. I shot up heroin behind the shed while the girls were drinking. I was trying to OD. We drove around with the girls. I was asleep most of the time. Beckett later told me he had dropped both girls off at home. I remember waking up and seeing the girl. We were parked in the bush. I asked Beckett where we were and he said, Victoria on the main road somewhere. I went off my head. I told him to go home 
Get the fuck out of here. Leslie stated that Lindsay pulled over onto a dirt track where he again injected Leslie with heroin. Who went back to sleep? Leslie told police that the next thing he knew, he felt someone touch him on the head. He woke up and realized the car was parked on top of a hill. He can hear her screaming and noticed that Lindsay, Lauren, and Nicole were gone. Leslie stated he called out for Lindsay for about 10 minutes. Quote, Then I saw him walking out of the bush. He had blood all over him. Told me he cut his finger. According to Leslie, Lindsay got in the car and the pair drove off. He recalled that he told Lindsay that he, quote, smelled like a slaughterhouse. Leslie claimed he fell back asleep, and when he awoke, they were in Canberra. He saw Lindsay on the side of the road, pouring petrol on a plastic bag containing what Lindsay said was paperwork and, quote, those clothes from a car he'd stolen. He set the bag alight. Lindsay got back in the car and drove to the shopping center, where Leslie bought Lindsay a pair of shoes because Lindsay told him he'd had left his shoes behind somewhere by mistake. Leslie told police that as the men drove across a bridge in Canberra, he saw Lindsay throw a knife out the window. When the men arrived in Sydney several days later, and Leslie saw a newspaper article about Lauren and Nicole's disappearance, he said to Lindsay, quote, I hope you didn't do those girls. Leslie was adamant that he might have said hello to Lauren and Nicole, but he didn't engage with them any further as he was asleep for most of the circuitous journey. Leslie mentioned that after leaving Sydney following the murders, he and Lindsay returned to where Lindsay had burnt the clothes, and he burnt them again. It was an inconsistent account that the investigators didn't believe for a second. Ten days after the interviews, on November 15th, Lindsay was extradited to Victoria, where Victoria police would now take carriage of the case from New South Wales detectives. He was interviewed further by Victoria police, to whom he also confessed. In the meantime, one of the murder weapons was recovered from Lake Burley Griffin. Despite Leslie's continued denials of any knowledge or responsibility, police charged both men with multiple accounts of abduction, rape, and murder across both jurisdictions. The men were charged under Victorian law with murdering Lauren and Nicole, but the New South Wales charge of abduction and sexual assault were held in reserve. The Barry and Collins families were told the heartbreaking news. Lauren's brother Nathan felt like his world had been destroyed. Quote, It was and still is the most horrific tragedy to hit this area. It's still being felt by those who were here and has sadly been passed down to others. On November 19th, a memorial service in honor of Lauren and Nicole was held in Bega's Littleton Gardens. The entire town came to a standstill as the community showed up to pay their respects and grieve such a painful and senseless loss. Nicole's father, Graham, addressed the crowd, saying, quote, Do not forget the impact of this terrible tragedy when it comes time for justice to be served. A week later, it was Leslie's turn to be extradited to Victoria, but he remained stum about the allegations against him. 
But before the matter could proceed to trial, police had to continue to work doggedly to obtain sufficient evidence of murder on Leslie's part that would stand up in court. Despite Lindsay's claim that his friend didn't even witness the slayings, the evidence would need to convince a jury that Leslie's control over Lindsay meant he was just as guilty as the man who had physically taken Lauren and Nicole's lives. When forensics testings was conducted on Lauren's clothing that had been found on the side of the road, traces of Leslie's semen were found on the fabric. Only one person in a million would have had that combination of DNA types found on Lauren's shirt. It was immediately apparent that Leslie hadn't simply been a bystander or asleep in the passenger seat for most of the night as he claimed. Lauren's shirt aside, if Leslie was to be believed, how did Lindsay single-handedly manage to keep two teenage girls prisoner during a 10-hour journey, which included numerous stops and vicious sexual assaults? If Leslie was fast asleep at Fiddler's Creek, how did Lindsay manhandle both Lauren and Nicole all the way down to the creek and kill them one after the other? The scenario Leslie had proposed was highly unlikely to have occurred, as he claimed. The DNA evidence against him only made Lindsay's account more credible. And Leslie's false alibi at the time, when he had no reason to conceal his supposed use of heroin, he claimed to have been injected not with heroin, but with amphetamine. In pharmacological terms, amphetamine use wouldn't have made Leslie sleepy. In fact, quite the reverse. It was clear to detectives that Leslie mentioned injecting heroin in an attempt to avoid having being placed in the girl's company. Another breakthrough came when investigators managed to trace the woman we know as R, whom Leslie and Lindsay had abducted and sexually assaulted three weeks before the murders. Despite her initial fears, R agreed to give a statement about her experience in order to corroborate the evidence against Leslie. R's account demonstrated that both men had an established modus operandi. When it came to committing acts of violence against women, and Leslie's propensity to behave in a certain way. Six months later, while prosecutors were still preparing their case, Lindsay acknowledged that R's account of events was not only true, but that Leslie had wanted to kill her by throwing her off a bridge. Thankfully, the Barry and Collins families would be spared at least one trial. On June 26, 1998, Lindsay appeared in the Victorian Supreme Court where he pleaded guilty to murdering Lauren and Nicole. Two months later at his sentencing, the judge openly denounced Lindsay's role in the grisly and despicable events. Quote, Precisely what occurred to these young people and the extent of the horror which they experienced will never be known. We, the community, have only your version of what happened. True it is that some objectively demonstrable features of your narrative have been verified but there is much which cannot be. The judge noted that the period of time over which Lauren and Nicole were held captive was about the same time the men had previously held R. But the judge wasn't entirely confident that Lindsay had accurately portrayed the respective roles and true levels of responsibility of the men. Lindsay's account presented Leslie as the mastermind who instigated most of the activities upon which the men embarked and indicated that he acted under Leslie's influence or control at all stages, and specifically in relation to the murders. On more than one occasion, when Lindsay's conduct was questioned by police, he demonstrated difficulty in recalling what had occurred. 
He attributed to Leslie virtually every single decision which led to the first sexual assault of Lauren, except the actual decision itself. The sentencing judge also noted that at no stage did Lindsay suggest that he experienced any sense of guilt or discomfort by reason of engagement in sexually assaulting Lauren, which continued for between 20 and 30 minutes, despite the 14-year-old's attempt to discourage Lindsay. When according to Lindsay's version, it became clear that Leslie intended to kill both Lauren and Nicole, Lindsay didn't express any concerns. In actuality, the evidence indicated that the only point at which Lindsay reacted against the plan was when he realized that Leslie expected him to kill both girls, and not one. The judge told the court that Lindsay's description of murdering Nicole was one of the most chilling he'd ever encountered over many years on the bench, referring to Lindsay punching Nicole in the head because she wouldn't die quickly enough. The judge was of the view that this wasn't the emotional response of a person who was acting out of fear, but instead, someone who was, quote, quite willing participant. The judge acknowledged that Lindsay had, quote, quite a low IQ, and as someone who, quote, had fallen under the influence of an older individual of much stronger personality, the absence of any sense of profound appreciation of human life and the personal dignity or feelings of your young victims is apparent at every point of your narrative. For most in the wider community, in time what you have done will become a distant event. You will represent simply the dark in which our women and children fearfully walk. But for some, and I refer particularly to the families and friends, the images will endure and the anguish remain. I carefully read the various victim impact statements produced to the court, and I was deeply moved by them. I have reflected a great deal upon you and your actions. As an ordinary human being, I have found that task to be profoundly disturbing. You took their lives for no better reason than to avoid detection and prosecution for a series of vile acts committed against them. Lindsay had already agreed to provide evidence against Leslie at the upcoming trial. In return, Lindsay received a sentence of life imprisonment with a non-parole period of 35 years. At the time, this was the longest ever non-parole period given in Victoria. As Lindsay was led from the courtroom, one of the teen girl's mothers yelled at him, I hope you rot in hell. Lindsay immediately appealed the severity of his sentence but in December 1998, this was dismissed. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask... Did you kill Renee? 
American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Leslie's trial began in February 1999 and ran for two months. A total of 70 witnesses gave evidence, but Lindsay and Leslie's friend Andrew wasn't one of these. As he had died by the time of the trial... The prosecution alleged that Leslie was extremely concerned that the pink TV would link him to the murders and that he exerted a strong level of influence over Lindsay, who was compliant and easily led. Leslie didn't give evidence in his own defense, but his team maintained his claims that he was in a drug-induced sleep for most of the journey and that Lindsay alone violated and murdered Lauren and Nicole. The defense told the court that Leslie's heroin use on the night in question affected his recall and meant he would have been either disoriented or asleep for the majority of the night and was therefore uninvolved. Leslie alternated between staring witnesses down and continually yawning, showing nothing more than contempt for the proceedings. It was almost too much for Lauren's brother Nathan, who by his own account had to be held back by his father and court security personnel as he listened to the atrocities committed against his sister and her close friend. The jury retired and after a two-day deliberation were ready to deliver their verdict. Leslie was found guilty. The Barry and Collins families whooped with joy and sheer relief. Before the convicted killer was led from the court, the judge remarked that Leslie had lied about injecting heroin in order to separate himself from the crimes without attempting to provide any explanation of what had occurred. Outside court, Nicole's mother, Delma, told Channel 9 News, quote, Guilty was the best word I'd heard in this long, long trial. Her husband, Graham, added, quote, Now maybe our girls can rest in peace, and we'd really like to thank the jury. They got it right. Later that month, Leslie returned to court for sentencing, the judge told the court that he accepted that Lindsay's account of events was substantially accurate, though he doubted that even Lindsay would be able to recall precisely what took place during the hours leading up to the murders. The judge pointed out two lies Leslie told which demonstrated consciousness of guilt. The first was Leslie's accounts of his whereabouts on the night of the girl's disappearance, and the second was about the TV. The judge went on to comment, quote, it seems that you selected Lauren for special attention, attacking her again and again throughout the night. You subjected both victims to hours of terror and an ordeal which I suspect they appreciated from an early point of time that they were almost certainly not going to survive. 
Once the ordeal started, you abandoned all pretense of any human decency. True it is that you did not perform the physical acts which brought about the deaths. However, it is apparent that this was a situation of true joint enterprise, and you operated as a team. Using the control which you clearly had over your weaker-willed but equally evil companion, you instructed him to perform acts that, in a somewhat perverse way, it could be said that you probably did not possess the courage to perform yourself. I have, I think, made it relatively clear in what I have already said that I consider your level of responsibility for the two murders to be very great indeed. And at least equal to that of Lindsay, it is terrible to contemplate the prospect that, as a consequence of the order which in my view, justice and proper appreciation of sentencing principles would require in your case. You may never be released from prison. However, I consider that my duty is clear. Through your own actions, you have forfeited your right to ever walk among us again. Leslie received two life sentences without parole. He would never be released. Leslie appealed both his convictions and sentences but in March 2001, this was dismissed. Upon making his decision, the appeal judge commented, quote, The case is undoubtedly one of the worst examples of murder to be found in this state. It is the worst in our experience and the worst case of murder with which I have had to deal. In May 2002, Leslie was also refused permission to appeal to the high court. Lauren and Nicole's legacy spurred an overhaul of the New South Wales Bail Act. In 1998, the act was amended to include new restrictions regarding granting of bail to violent repeat offenders. In 2012, the long arm of the law again caught up with Leslie. Over another extremely high-profile, historical case, Leslie had subsequently made admissions to police about the February 1992 murder of 13-year-old schoolgirl. Prue Bird, who disappeared from her home in Melbourne and whose body was never found. Leslie appealed in Melbourne Magistrate's Court to answer the charges, was later sentenced to another 28 years in jail. Leslie Camilleri continues to receive death threats from other prisoners and has spent a significant amount of his sentence in protective custody. Lindsay Beckett will be 59 years old when he becomes eligible for parole in 2033. Lauren and Nicole are not forgotten. Soon after their deaths, a memorial to the close friends was erected by their family, friends, and the Bega community at the site where they were abducted, on the corner of Tarthur Road and a dirt track called White Rock Road. Colorful bunting of yellow, green, orange, white, and blue adorns the quiet bushland spot, featuring a plaque with the words, quote, Two lovelier daughters would be hard to find, your spirits will live on forever. A painted piece of volcanic rock bearing the Ohm symbol, representing universal harmony and tolerance, is placed at the foot of the memorial. Graham and Delma Collins have a private memorial to their youngest daughter in their backyard. Garrett Berry also keeps a reminder of his daughter close to him in the form of a dedicated rose garden outside his office window. He spoke to reporter Caroline Overington of the pain and anguish he lives with every day. Quote, The grief will never leave, 
but it will become easier to bear. At the moment, if I see a young girl in the supermarket with similar colored hair to Lauren, it stabs me in the heart. At the flat, I have a little shrine to her, and we sprinkled some of her ashes at Tathra Beach. When I swim, I have a sense that she is with me. On the 20th anniversary of the murders, Nathan told Woman's Day magazine of how he had chosen not to focus his thoughts on the convicted killers. Quote, Initially, I had a deep hate for them, but hate does no good. I can't accept what they did, but I've abandoned thoughts of hate and revenge. If you hang on to those things, you wither away. And I know that Lauren would have wanted all of us to make the most of our lives. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. <laughs>